This is the airing of grief. Conversations and correspondence about spiritual de and reconstruction. Season two, episode one, false start. This season, on the airing of grief. If I have the ability to be empathetic and compassionate towards, you know, marginalized people, um, LGBT um, immigrants, where my, you know, conservative family and church body can't, then does that make me more compassionate than this higher power? Right. And if so, then one, why would I want to follow a God that is not as good as I am? Yes, right. Or how do I figure out what the real true good God is? Mm-hmm. Where is he if he is not in these people that are hateful and don't have that compassion, then, then where is he? So I didn't really get this until like, until like, the Ferguson riots started happening and all these other shootings started happening. How much pressure it, there, it is to be black in the white church? Well, when when I've been gone through seasons of extreme doubt, it's always felt so isolating. And I've always felt so alone. And it has been kind of just eye-opening and mind-blowing to see, like, wow, there are people out there that are going through this exact same thing. Basically, I have this one sentence here that kind of sums it all up. Uh, the institution that promised to save me, save me nearly killed me twice. Growing up, you know, th- there was only one way to be. You know, you, you grow up, you fall in love with a girl, you know, and, and hey, like, I'm telling you, man, like, the, the whole, you know, purity movement, it's really easy to be pure, with girls when you're gay, you know? Oh, wow, yeah. You know, but, you know, so I thought I was, like, rocking that. Being okay with who I am and being okay with what I'm doing. Yes. Um, When, you know, growing up with, like, the stigmas of anyone in the sex industry. I remember, like, I remember the exact moment when I just was reading for a Bible study that I was leading, and I just looked at it, and I was like, I don't believe this anymore. I had, like, kind of a knee-jerk reaction sometimes when my songs were on shuffle to, like, if, like, a church song comes on, I'll just be like, oh. And And it's not, like... It, it's it's because of those feelings of obligation. Yeah. And to this day, I still have friends who who still believe in more conventional ways. Who are like, you're so hard on the church. You're you know you're so critical. And I was like, I earned that right. You know, it's all I've done with my life. And you know, I've earned the right to be hurt by it because I invested everything I was into it. And I'm not going to be I'm not going to be guilted or shamed for that. I. You know, I deserve a reckoning with the thing that has defined my existence. He did a sermon series over hard questions and like the audience could ask questions and he would answer them live from the stage. Mm -hmm. And one of them was about Black Lives Matter and he just said, I don't know enough about this, so I'm not gonna answer that. I had one friend that said to me specifically, you know, like, hey, look at all of the circumstances surrounding this. Like God obviously wants you to have this 
kid. You know, this is what you've gone through this whole time. And about four weeks later, we lost the baby. That really opened my eyes to like this interventionist God is dead. Like it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it never did exist, right? But so heartbreaking that, and and also extremely understandable that you felt like that. Those were the only circumstances under which you could even try and be this person because oh, yeah. you were not provided any real estate upon which to exist in the other right. world. That that's. A really poetic way of saying that, actually. Yeah. Classic web. Um. <laughs> the, the being alone is different now because previously I was a type of alone that was so lonely because I didn't have myself. I'm grateful for that. And if you and if I was to change any one thing, even the very painful things and the really hard things and the things that felt like years of wasted time, if I'm tempted to believe that, any one of those things being changed for the better, a, a half a degree difference in my trajectory 10 years ago could have had me a thousand miles off course now from where I am and I don't wish that. Hi there listeners, this is Kevin, one of the four producers of this podcast for anyone new to us. So everything you just heard and a lot more is coming this season, but not yet. After what we asked for in between seasons, It might seem great to skip immediately to some of those interactions that played out just as we'd hoped, but it wouldn't be entirely honest. It wouldn't be fully true to what's happened in preparing for this season because, well, it would gloss over some surprising moments faced on our way there. Our decision to disrupt our format and to be more intentional about making sure we're featuring a greater diversity of voices has not always proved easy. And not everyone who's invited to offer up a piece of their experience is instantly on board anyway. So the call we're featuring in this first episode is a testament to that, uprooting some of our expectations and reminding us to take less and less for granted. People and issues and contexts, these are all complex and complicated things. And that's okay. I'll speak more to some of what this has come to mean to us, and how it shaped our approach since the call came in after we hear the call itself. But for now, know this. We recognize that trust has to be earned, and we're not automatically going to be considered a safe or resonant place for everyone we might desire to hear from, and we're not entitled to vulnerability from anyone on our own terms. So in the interest of full transparency and disruption, which we asked for, but didn't necessarily expect in these ways, We are dedicating this episode to good intentions and false starts. Hello. Hey. Hey, Derek. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, Thanks for uh, carving out a few minutes to chat. Yeah. Um, so we've got 10 minutes. Let's just, let's get into it. Tell me, (laughs) tell me your story. Well, you know, you start out all these conversations by saying like, either we have something in common or we don't anymore. Right. Right. So, um, so why did you want to talk to me, Derek? Yeah. Well, mostly because we, are in each other's orbit. We are, we obviously have a lot of friends or former community in common. We, um, 
live in the same city and I think have two different experiences having gone through a similar thing in terms of being ostracized out of a faith community. And I was curious to hear how that felt for you and how how did that bear on your spirituality and and also open to talking about how that was different for you than it was for me, which I know is something that you brought up, you know, previously. And so that's why I was curious to talk to you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I'm kind of fascinated, like who I am to you. Uh, cause Same. like, we ha- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Who, like, if you were going to explain who I am to you, like, who, what would you say? Um, that you are a, that we're, I would, I consider you a friend. I consider you're, you're certainly somebody who is a family friend because you've hung out with my kids a lot and you're friends with, or I, I presume, I don't know your life or, um, or, you know, kind of your social schedule, but you know, I, you and my ex-wife are friends, uh, I, I think. Um, and, uh, but, uh, and, and then you and I also share having come through um, RUF, you know, here in Nashville and that crew of people. Um, and we're involved with some churches at the same time and things like that. So, but we, but we haven't seen each other or really connected in a while. But I certainly consider you a friend, you know, and, and, um, and, and part of that community. Um, mm-hmm. that I was in, or we were in together for a, for a long time. And, and, and then obviously that, that, that family connection, you know, because m- whenever my kids hear that you're coming over, they all go, they go bananas. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen them. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes I wonder if they see me that you, if they even remember who I am. Anymore. Oh my God. They, they, of course they do. So yeah. long. No, of course they do. <laughs> I think I ran into Sandra somewhere and the kids were kind of just giving me these looks and I was like, and like, Oh, do you remember? She used to, she used to babysit no, you guys. They know exactly who you are. Um, no, it's kind of fascinating. Cause, um, yeah, like I nannied for your kids for like a year and, um, like babysat for the small group that you were a part of. We went yep. to the same church yep. and, um, and, you know, in all of that time, like we never, I don't know that we had a lot of one-on-one conversations. Like, um, I, not, not I don't too know, much. Yeah. One time I interviewed you for one of my classes. That's true. Time. That's right. <laughs> and you talked about noise trade. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, and I mean, I feel like we had some conversation, but I think between your being a good bit younger than me and my having been married during all of the time that we ever interacted which puts different kind of guardrails around like the amount of time I spend alone with women hanging out in general. Um, we didn't ever really get that close. (laughs) So I I think it was like, you know, I think that's explain. I think that, you know, makes sense in the context. Yeah. We like, when I would, when I think about, uh, the nature of our relationship, I don't know that, um, you're somebody that I would necessarily call a friend because, a friend is somebody like if I was in trouble or if I needed to process something, like I would call them, I would I would feel comfortable talking to them. You and I have always been like, like we're planets in the same orbit. <laughs> sure. Well, and maybe um, maybe maybe we define friends differently because if if a friend is only somebody who you call in the middle of the night in an emergency, then that means 
like I, that's a different category for, category for me. If if that's what a friend is, then I have no friends. I mean, I have <laughs> I, I I have like a few great friends, like very close people to me, and those are those people for me. But I have a lot of friends. But all the people who I would consider friends aren't people I would call in the middle of the night. I, I have two or three of like my people. Not pe always in the middle people. of the night. No, no, you, you know, you know what I'm saying. Like <laughs> I have a lot of friends, people I consider friends, who are I'm not super close to, and I don't spend regular time with, but I see regularly enough to care about them, to know bits of their stories. Um, people who you know, I would like to spend more time with, um, and I think it's probably mutual. But I only have like my then I have like my people, and my people is more what you're talking about for you when you talk about friends. Those are my people, those are people who really know me, know my story, whose stories I know very deeply, who we spend, you know, people I talk to very regularly and, and there's only two or three of those people. Um, and yeah, you and I have never been on that level for sure, but I think planets in the same orbit does make sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've we've always been adjacent to each other and, sure. um, and even like as we've moved from like the RUF city church kind of world into um where we are now like yeah. we still have like <laughs> we're still kind of like in the same orbit I it's, think that's uh, true. we yeah. just keep running into each other yeah um yeah i'm and so does that make sense in terms of why i thought you would be a really helpful voice you know like to kind of pull into this thing because i feel like you're having gone through some of that and you know and so what i'm mostly interested in is you kind of telling some of your story and kind of hearing why that's for, for, for all the people who are not me, uh, who are virtually on this call with us right now. Um, you know, so that they would understand why that would be interesting mm -hmm. <laughs> to us. Yeah. So what, like you're, you're taking another direction with this season. Um, it said on the website and, um, I'm curious, like, so you, you noticed that, or like your production team noticed collectively, you said that there was a lack of, of diversity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did it, all that, yeah. Did that, did that, um, did that kind of pivot, that intentional pivot on our part? Did that make sense? It was something that I had also observed <laughs> Yeah, sure. when I was listening to the podcast. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, uh, what you are hoping to find right well we're we are hoping to not have a conversation about spiritual DNA reconstruction dominated by white men and by the experience of people who are just like mostly like us i mean one of our producers one of the four of us is a female but a straight female and white the other three of us are white straight men and we realized pretty quickly that if not for some some intentional disruption from the inside, we were going to wind up doing exactly what the church does, which is mm -hmm. exclude intersectional voices, minority voices, women's voices, queer voices, all the most important voices, and the ones that are typically absent from this conversation in general. I mean, we felt like it was this great, and it has been a great thing for a lot of folks to not feel alone going through spiritual crises or the slow spinning down of their season of, of spiritual faith or Christian faith and into something else, whatever that may be, and, um, and finding our way through that and reconstructing on the other side. But yeah, we realized pretty quickly that the majority of the people who were responding and that we were talking to were like us generally. And how different so much of this sort of thing feels 
to people who are not like us and whose voices are generally excluded from conversations like this. And we just, we're, we weren't going to have that. And so we were willing to nuke the whole thing before we were going to let it become white male dominated, like everything else. And especially like a lot of church related things. And so that's why we decided to intentionally go after the voices that we thought were the most valuable and that we had the most to learn from, which were going to be those who were more in that intersectional, um, area. Um, you know, and, and so I, and I certainly, so, and so I considered you to be potentially a really valuable voice there. And yet here we are nine minutes in and you haven't even started telling your story. <laughs> so, um, well, I'm, well, I'm curious, to be a why, like, why do you think that the podcast has been, and also like these conversations of spiritual reconstruction and deconstruction yeah. have been dominated by straight white men? Um, in general, I can't speak to. In our case, I can tell you because our first season was drafted off the release of my record because that's why the podcast started. It, the podcast started because I put my new record out, which is a record about spiritual deconstruction. And it was me telling my story of having gone through it. And everyone's responses to the record were not really about the record. They were people telling, wanting to tell their own stories about what they'd gone through. And so me and some friends immediately realized there's a real opportunity here. People need a place to be able to tell these stories. And for the few people who are willing to tell them, which won't be most of the people, there are a lot of other people who would be fearful to tell those stories but might hear their voices and might feel some comfort and not feel isolated and alone and going through it by hearing these stories. And so that's why we wanted to intentionally gather the stories. But so I think our first season probably looks a lot like my demographic as an artist. You know, it's mm -hmm. a lot of white dudes. Um, that's apparently who listens to my music. A lot of artists make music and there's different people who like different kinds. And, you know, for whatever strange, uh, just observable reason, mostly people who've listened to my music are, a lot, are, are mostly a lot of white dudes. So that's what wound up being the audience for the podcast to some extent. Um, and, and, and a lot of folks from the gay community too, but mostly still white men. Cause we had, <laughs> we had, we had a, a great representation of, of, uh, of gay men on the first season um, which might have come from the time I've spent of my career trying to provide a voice to that community or trying to listen to that community or, you know, making records that were about the way that the church fumbles with those kind of issues, too. And so I think I've had some connection there. So, yeah, yeah. But that, but that's why our podcast is, is um, that's why the first season was felt that way, because that's who was listening because that's who's that's who your fan base that's my that, fans and that's why yeah. we are wanting to broaden this thing out well beyond anybody who could ever have heard of or care about me or my music as an artist we, this is a much bigger conversation and it needs a more diverse voices which is why we're in, we've intentionally tried to detach from that and pursue well beyond um you know my audience with it you know that's why we're yeah that's why we're that was our kind of aha and our immediate pivot have you ever thought about why your fan base is so um full of white men uh probably because i'm a white man and i think that people uh the people who over the my 20 some odd years of making music the people who've resonated with me the most are the people whose stories who are most resonant with my story and people who feel as though i have provided soundtrack for their lives which means we probably have a lot of things in common and that's not um that's not a, an issue for me that I that I'm worried about. Um, that makes sense to me for the same reason that the bands who I love are bands whose stories I resonate with and are providing soundtrack for my life. Um, that probably means we have something fundamentally in common. And 
So I think a lot of, so in other words, I am a straight white man in my early 40s. And I think that's probably a lot of the people who resonate with my music because I'm, because I'm not telling the story of a 20-something African-American uh, transgender woman because I'm not a 20-something African-American transgender woman. But there are artists who are exactly that. And I bet they are providing tremendous soundtrack for that demographic of people, you see? And so, like, I've never really felt that strange about the fact that in fact, it's totally understandable to me that my audience would be in many ways resonant with and therefore have things in common with me. So I think, yeah, a lot of my audience are straight white guys because I'm telling their story and as far as I'm telling my story. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, a question to like, with art at least, what truths um, we discover through it that... Um, are part of our own particular stories, but find universal res- resonance. And yeah. for those that are particular, and um, and I think that like any person of color can tell you about a piece of art that was made by somebody who was who did not have the same race, class, gender, period, sure. time, language that um, they were able to find themselves in. So I do think that um, that the themes are more than just about like our audience base looks like the people that look like us. Um, I do think that there's, there's, there's something to be said about the content, right. And whether or not even the, the way we approach things and the, and the perspective and the direction in which we take them and, um, and you know, nothing, nothing exists in a vacuum. Yes. Right. So in, in that sense, um, you wanting to engage these stories now moving forward, like the first thing we have to do is kind of look at from where you've come with a critical eye. Sure. Well, and to be, to be, just to be clear, you were asking me about why I think my audience for my music as an artist is the way, is the demo that it is. And so that's one answer. The audience for our podcast is a different answer. And the responsibility, the extent to which we, I take responsibility and seek to disrupt my audience versus our, our, our producers and, and me included wanting to disrupt and take responsibility for the podcast audience are two separate things also. Do you know what I mean? So um, like I, I am, I'm grateful for whoever resonates with my music and I ultimately am just telling my story. My responsibility in terms of who I am as an artist really goes no further. All I can really do is look at the world, describe it for you. And if it's resonant to you, I would, then I think you'll find yourself listening and I'm grateful for that. When it comes to art, and that's really as far as that goes. When it comes to our podcast, that's different, you know, and that's the thing that we've we've sought to more intentionally disrupt and include. We are wanting to be intentionally inclusive of any voice and all voices that we think are important, especially when it comes to talking about spiritual DNA reconstruction, if that makes sense. And so, um, yeah, which is why we're here, you know. Um, yeah, um, I will say this, that um, in terms of like the idea or this kind of, there's a lot of like buzz around the conversation of like, what is spiritual re and deconstruction kind of look like? I don't, I don't find myself resonating with those conversations. Sure. And, and and they're generally, they generally are centered around straight white men. Oftentimes um, white men, like some of them are somewhere in the queer umbrella, but, um, but yeah, mostly straight white men. And, um, 
And so, you know, the like initial question of like, what is my experience of spiritual de and reconstruction? Is that um, that like that's not even a framework that I would use to describe my experiences? Yeah. Well. Um, unfortunately, we're so, I, I hate to say it, but we're so, these calls are stacked up kind of tight and I, we're so far over time that rather than talking about how you don't relate to it, I wish that you'd contributed a little bit and I hope we have time in the future for you to contribute to how you do frame it and what your story is rather than just how you don't relate to this one. I, I mean, it, it's disappointing because I really know you, I think you have a really valuable story for a lot of people who would love to hear their voice reflected. And I'd love to give another try to that at some point, but unfortunately that's the time we have. <laughs> yeah. Now. Well, I figured I, I was concerned okay. by the 10 minutes. Cause I was like, this is, the story is like way too complicated. Well, you think so, but like we've had some pretty that. complicated stories on this podcast and we've managed to do it, like at least get the, the highlights. Me, I'm, like, I'm literally like, I'm deconstructing the question you want me to answer. Okay. Like I don't like, and that's, and that's part of, you know, as I really started to dig into this question about what that would look like for me and how to talk about it in a way that was was true and honest and not trying to kind of like repackage my own experience no. to fit into a white box. Like right. I was like, I I I think that this is a much longer conversation and that okay. um and that like oftentimes um straight white men come to especially people of color and expect them to be able to just tell their stories and there isn't um there isn't a lot of back work done to it but a lot of prep work to come in because i've spent my whole life code switching and sure. um, being able to assimilate into white conversation however like if we really are going to pursue these in a way of like equity and justice we actually have to completely reorient the how we have our conversation oh, I, no i don't disagree with that i just didn't i would have and may, maybe this is my blind spot i just wouldn't have assumed that Tell me your story was a white question. You obviously didn't see my Brene Brown thread. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. But, I'm, I'm but you know what I mean? Like, just to say, I don't say, expect you to read my Twitter. Like, it's like, I but, don't expect that you read my Twitter. But, you know, like, if you, if you meet somebody and say, wow, so you're fascinating and just tell me your story. Just start, just tell me your story and make your own choice about what you want to include and not include and what's important and what's not. But I just wouldn't have presumed that tell me your story was a, what would have required you to code switch into white speak because I would not want to do oh, it that. All, everything. It always does every conversation, okay. but, but even me saying speak. like, I want to provide a platform to amplify your voice and tell me your story. I wouldn't have thought that would have, I mean, again, and that's maybe that's my blind spot, but that, as I just say that out loud, it sounds like a pretty open and equal, like a, a door that's open to anybody. And I would, ho I would hope that it is. And, um, but maybe we'll have another shot at it sometime. Either way, I, your perspective is invaluable and I appreciate you spending the time and I hope we get to talk again about it. So, yeah. And I would recommend, I would, uh, encourage you to listen to places where, um, there's platforms that are for and by people of color who are telling their own stories in their own ways. Sure. 
Um, and to start there as opposed to trying to tell their stories on your platform. Right. Well, see, I'm not trying to tell their stories. I'm trying to give my platform to you to, for you to tell your own story. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to take your story. I, I, I'm, I'm, we're, we're, we're literally giving away our platform to people whose voices are more important than ours, we believe. So like we're not, and, and, and the alternative is, I guess I just don't understand like what, I get what you're saying. And I get the I get you're trying to be instructive, but it's like, but that's happening in those places. We want to disrupt a conversation being dominated by people like us, by a bunch of white dudes, with an infusion of diversity of voice. Like we we want to include that here. We want this to be a place for all those voices to exist in one place. And and I'll certainly do that. And I appreciate that recommendation. But what I would hope to do is to give our platform. Um, not to take anyone's stories and do anything with it, but rather to just provide, just to say, if I have a, a step that anyone can stand on, I, I, I would rather get off of it and, and offer it to you, to anybody to come and to tell their stories in any way that they would wish. Um, and if, if they like, and, um, yeah. And so I would, e and I would even just make a slight suggestion that your, uh, the, your desire to disrupt is, is also very rooted in, in whiteness and to think carefully about, um, but to disrupt our own thing. I mean, it's, it's our thing. So we can make choices about whether we want to keep it going and make it status quo and awful, or if we want to disrupt it and shake it up for the benefit of those who are nothing like us, which is what we choose to do. I'm not looking to dis disrupt anybody else's thing. We're just trying to disrupt oh, I know, I know. our thing. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> okay. okay, listen, man, I really appreciate it. It was great to yeah, talk to you. Yeah, you gotta go, though. I get it. Okay, we'll see you. <laughs> Bye. Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. That observation was made by Martin Luther King during the Civil Rights Movement, but not much has changed since. It remains a powerful statement of truth-telling, beyond the general systemic disparities which lead to continued segregation in our own time, be they inequalities in housing policies, law enforcement, the financial sector, failures in the justice system, etc., we who came of age in a church environment have this particularly strong experience of segregation and isolation from one another. And for me as a white evangelical, that was never something that church told me to pay any attention to. I bring up that quote and everything else because this common underlying reality shapes many of us, or maybe most of us, in our experience still. It has amplified the already present American experience. And when you want to see a snapshot of racial division in America, there's no better place to look than the institution of Christianity. Even if one of the reasons you leave church behind is a concern for, say, racial equity and justice, it turns out that faith lingers, leaving its mark on your experience of the world around you. So perhaps we go looking for a bigger world, and yet the same widely different, disparate lives follow us out. Nothing changes automatically, the imbalance remains, whether based in race, gender, sexual orientation, or whatever else. For season two, we sought to challenge this imbalance in our own context, 
to disrupt it, subvert it, invert it. That's a process we're still in now. And we can tell you this much, seeing things get better is not instant. For marginalized people, defensiveness is justified. In fact, it's been essential for survival. So I'd imagine it can feel a bit tricky when someone like me offers to listen. We can't undo centuries of oppression and hurt overnight, but we are committed to the process, even when it's awkward and raw and maybe defensiveness is high. We get it, and we're trying to do better. We're trying to listen, to understand. We're coming to terms with coming to terms in real time. And so occasionally the space we're creating here at the airing of grief has become less predictable as a result of this move toward greater diversity. But maybe that's what needs to happen. Maybe all that means is that we're finally doing something right in grappling with this together. But we don't get to just, as they say, empty the pews or stay in them and suddenly have the dream of reconciliation and togetherness. We have to learn how to speak to one another new language. We have to learn what does and doesn't concern people of a different experience. We have to learn to assume less. Many of us are starting from scratch, striving toward empathy, learning out loud. What was perhaps a surprising or awkward handful of minutes for Derek on the phone might just be how someone like the caller feels all of her life. Being given an opportunity to speak of her experience can include some confusion or even frustration over what that opportunity even means. That's totally valid. And those of us seeking to help carry another's burden would do well to learn what that burden is. And so we're learning, even in our false starts, and we want to be transparent about that process. We're learning that sometimes we have a lot to work through, and learning that we can't be too quick to assume what it is we're doing here and that the same marginalized voices which we've sought to help us need to also be a part of setting the stage for themselves so they can speak to their experience on their own terms. They need to help build that platform so they can know it's one they want to stand on and one which they feel safe to be amplified from. This agitation is actually good. It makes us think more deeply and deliberately. But the work of speaking truth and reconciliation isn't easy, and when particular voices have been pretty much absent from the conversation our whole lives, we can't just set up a microphone and expect them to come flocking, feeling automatically vulnerable. There's a time and a season for everything. A time for frustration, and a time for post-traumatic stress. A time for hesitancy and reluctance. And even when all parties involved long to unify and to see the situation improve, it's still a process and it cannot be rushed. We're learning a lot about our blind spots, our assumptions, the things that we might miss due to privilege. And all of that is crucial. We don't wanna skip that part and go straight to the story if it means being absent from the story ourselves. And there are some incredible stories coming. But for now, that's what we're going to let echo out this first week of the new season. And just sort of have some space of its own, without any other calls, letters, or recordings. But if you're listening to the podcast, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Airing Grief, and especially give us a star rating and review on iTunes. Those really do help to make us visible. 
You can see all the episodes, companion essays, and get info about our team, or even how to share your own story at theairingofgrief.com. And you can also look into supporting The Airing of Grief on Patreon. Details about our goals and rewards we're offering can be found there. We're launching a private messaging space this season for our patrons, and we're still doing our monthly video chats, releasing bonus calls, and all the other stuff we've been doing, so look us up there. And we'll see you after church next week for the airing of grief.